You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. There are some people that you do not want to cross. You do not want to make them angry. I believe Jesus Christ would be one of those. There are many views of Christ, but few ever paint him in anger. Yet he, in fact, has been known to be an angry Christ. Today we look at what angers him. Turn with us to Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21, as the pastor delivers the sermon, An Angry Christ. All right, so Mark 11, and we'll begin reading in verse 12 this morning. You know, there are just some people, you might think of a few right now, there's some people that you do not want to cross. You know what I mean? They're those people you just don't want to upset them. You don't want to get them angry because when you do, it's not a good thing. And let me tell you something. I believe that Jesus Christ is one such person. I believe he is one that you don't want to cross. You don't want to get him angry and there are many views of Jesus Christ and who he is, who he was, how he lived, what he taught. But one of the views of Christ that you very rarely hear um, exposed is the fact that Christ himself could be angry. He could be angry. We hear a lot about a loving Christ. Very seldom do we hear about an angry Christ. Yet, in fact, he has been known to be angry. And today we're going to look at the scripture and find out what it is that angers Christ. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the one that makes him angry. So Mark chapter 11, look with me in verse number 12. And on the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree that had leaves, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he was not permitting anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they were going out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. The grass withers, the flower fades. Amen. Now we have seen Jesus enter Jerusalem for the final time. We've seen his resoluteness as he marched toward the cross of Calvary. And so where we're at in our study of the book of Mark is we're in that final week of Jesus' life here on the earth. 
So we've seen his triumphal entry or his coronation. And at this time, it's not safe for Jesus to stay in Jerusalem, not because he's afraid. If he was afraid, he wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem to begin with. But it wasn't really safe for him to stay all night. He was staying in Bethany, as we have seen, there in the area of the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem. And in fact, in our text today, you find where he comes into Jerusalem, and as it becomes nighttime, he goes back out to Bethany. And as he's leaving Bethany, going back to Jerusalem, again, he passes by the fig tree, and that's the occurrence that we have in the scripture that we read today. But our passage today shows kind of one event sandwiched between another. We have this whole episode with Jesus and the fig tree, and right in between that, we find Jesus cleansing the temple. And I don't think this is by accident, of course. This is God's word, and it was put here intentionally. Mark tells us these details, I believe, for a reason, because it links these two otherwise separate events together, not just in their timeline, but also in their significance. So there's something here, a lesson that we need to learn from this passage this morning. These two events that we see, that of cursing the fig tree and cleansing the temple, they portray a righteous action of an angry Christ. So we're going to find that this angry Christ curses the fig tree, he cleanses the temple, and yet through it all, this angry Christ still cares for his own. So let's look at the angry Christ as he curses. In verse 12, we're told that on the next day when he had left Bethany, he became hungry and seeing at a distance a fig tree that had leaves, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. His disciples were listening. Then look down at verse number 20, the result of what Jesus has done now. This is the next morning. In verse 20, and as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots and being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Now we looked at this uh, name, Bethany. Remember, this was known as the house of sorrow and the area there from Bethany toward Jerusalem was called Bethpage, which meant house of unripe figs. And it was important to note that because this area was known for the fig trees that would grow throughout. And so we have a story that involves just such a fig tree in this passage today. So Jesus staying there at the house of sorrow, passing through an area known for uh, the figs, comes to this fig tree. We're told in verse 12 that when he left Bethany, he became hungry. Now, you can almost kind of set the stage for this, can't you? Here is Jesus, very resolute, very set on what is about to happen. He knows what's coming. The mission uh, is really approaching a climax now. He's getting very, very close to his death on the cross. And he has just gone before this 
and viewed out the temple. Look back at verse number 11. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. Now remember, Mark gave us that detail. And this is important because he's going to have another episode that happens in the temple. Think about it for just a moment. Jesus has gone into Jerusalem. He's gone into the temple. He surveyed everything there. And he goes back to Bethany. And what's happening? It seems that his anger is building. He, he knows what he has seen and what he has experienced there in the temple. Jesus is very focused as he is on his way back. He's going back to the temple to cleanse that place that he's viewed out, that he's found corrupted. And as he's going back, intent upon cleaning out this temple, he comes to this fig tree. Now, Verse 13 says, and seeing at a distance a fig tree that had leaves, this is important because there is all kinds of controversy surrounding this event. There are people who have tried to absolutely destroy the authenticity of the word of God based on this one event. People try to destroy the character and nature of Christ based upon this event. And then there are those who have tried to protect it and they have gone through all types of gymnastics to try to explain this event so that everyone would accept it. Now, we could talk about the different types of fig trees that existed in this area, what type of fruit they produced, when they produced it, and we could go into all those details. But all of those details really are not the focus of this passage because they all point to really the same lesson. You see, the fig tree at this time, if it was very healthy and it was producing leaves, at the time the fig tree was producing leaves and blooming, it was expected to have the beginnings at least of fruit on it at that moment. Now, Mark tells us here that this was not the season for figs. And yet, while it may have been out of season, here was a tree that presented itself as being ready. A tree that when you look at it from a distance had all the telltale signs that says this is a healthy tree and regardless of whether it's time or not, it's showing all the signs that it should have some fruit on it right now. Do you get this? So Jesus sees this tree giving all the indicators that there should be fruit there. And when he comes to this tree that by all indications would have fruit on it regardless of the season... What does he find? No fruit. There are no figs. And so he curses the tree. Some have said, well, that poor tree. How could, how could this loving Jesus, by the way, that we, we always portray, how could this loving Jesus look at this poor innocent tree and curse it like that? I mean, this just seems so out of character, doesn't it? Understand what's happening here. Everything about this tree says there is fruit. And yet there is no fruit. This passage is a lesson regarding hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. You see, in the Old Testament, fruitful fig trees were symbolic of God's faithful covenant blessings on his people as they dwelled in fellowship with their God, as they were obedient to him, as they were trusting him. 
But an unfruitful and withered fig tree symbolized just the opposite of that. So keep in mind when you read the Old Testament and you see the fig tree, Israel is often associated with that fig tree. And in its abundance and its fruit and its production, it's showing that covenant relationship that they have with their God. As they're faithful to him, as they're serving him, there's this fruitfulness and this blessing that abounds. But when the fig tree was withered, it showed just the opposite. This is Israel not being faithful to their covenant God, not producing fruit. So Jesus approaches a fig tree that bears no fruit. And it demonstrates for us his view of those who by all indicators should be producing fruit, and yet they aren't. They claim to be one thing, but in reality, there's something else. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 7, verse 6. He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus has already addressed those who speak of him, who speak of God with their lips. They honor him with their lips. But the reality is that all the time that they're speaking of him from from their mouth, their hearts are way away from him. Isaiah Christ, they both call these people hypocrites. Hypocrites. The term in Greek culture at that time, when the New Testament was written, would have been used of an actor. That's what the word hypocrite meant. It was an actor, one who played a part in a play. And the way an actor at that time would play have a mask to conceal the reality and portray the image they wanted the audience to see. That's really what hypocrisy is. We present the image that we want others to have of us. They see what we want them to see. They see our social media accounts, right? And everything looks great and everything looks grand. What they don't see is the heart of man and where we really are. And so it's that inconsistency that hypocrisy deals with. I say I'm one thing, but I'm really not. I say I do one thing, but I don't. I say I don't do something, but I do. That's hypocrisy. And really, this fig tree is a lesson about Christ's view of that very thing. 2 Timothy 3.5, Paul talks about those who hold to a form of godliness but have denied its power. And he says, you keep away from such people. (laughs) They have a form of godliness, but their form of godliness has no power to it. It's superficial. It's fake. It's not real. In Titus 1.6, Paul talks about those who profess that they know God, but by their works, they deny him. These are the same people which, by the way, say, you shouldn't judge me, right? Don't judge me. I can claim to be a Christian, but I don't live anything like a Christian. Don't judge me. 
Paul says they profess that they know God, but by their works, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. (laughs) Paul himself says, I have nothing good to say about those who profess to know God, but their works don't add up. They're detestable, disobedient. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? You understand what the word Lord means? It means that you're my master. I'm your servant. You're my Lord. You're the boss. You're the master. Why do you call me master, Lord, and do not do what I say? It's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? To call him Lord, but disobey him? If he's Lord and master, then it demands obedience from us. And you know, the most harsh treatment of anyone by Christ, the most, the most harsh treatment that, that Christ has for anyone has always been reserved for the religious hypocrites. The religious hypocrites. You know, it was that sinner that was caught in the grossest of sins that Jesus didn't excuse the sin, but what did he say? Jesus said, go and sin no more. Yeah, it's sin. And go and don't do it anymore. Forsake it. Repent. Turn. He showed compassion for the sinner. You remember even that rich young ruler as he walked away, Jesus had compassion on him. He was wrong. He was sinful. And Jesus was compassionate. He was calling him to repent, to change, to come to a new life, to sin no more. Jesus can be very gentle with the sinner at times as he called them sternly to repentance. But for the religious hypocrite, Jesus had very little patience. For the self-righteous ones, the self-righteous would react different from the sinner. You know, the known sinner might repent, might turn, might be gracious. But those who were self-righteous, Oh, they just grow angry. They grow harder. They fight even more. Why? Their achievement, their worth is found in themselves. And those are the ones that Jesus just didn't have a lot of patience with. And the harshest words you find him ever uttering are to those scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious crowd of that day. Christ is angered by hypocrisy in our lives. So we ask ourselves this morning, are you living as a Christian should live? You see, we carry that name, right? We say I'm a Christian, meaning I'm Christ-like. We claim to be Christians But do we truly live that way? You see, it's one thing for me to do something I shouldn't do, but I never claimed that I don't do it. If I have ever told you that I don't do something, and then you find me doing it and it's sinful, that doesn't make me a hypocrite. It makes me a sinner. I'm a sinner. But if I tell you I don't do this thing, and then I go do it, That's being a hypocrite, isn't it? 
I've claimed one thing, but I'm not doing it. And in essence, we do that when we claim the name of Christ and we don't follow him. We call him Lord, but we don't do what he says. Do we claim to be one person yet live like another? I'm not talking about perfection here. I'm not talking about the fact that we sin, that we repent, that we do fail from time to time. But I'm asking in general, your lifestyle, your consistency. Do you honor him with your lips, but your heart really is far from him? You see, Israel claimed to be God's people. Abraham's our father. We're godly. We're righteous. We're the chosen seed, the chosen nation. They held the Gentiles to be in contempt and viewed them with disdain. And yet, all the while claiming the name of God, claiming to be his people, they failed to live like it. It was exemplified there in that temple that Jesus had just viewed out. And when he comes to this fig tree, a real symbol of the hypocrisy of Israel, what does Jesus do? Look at verse number 14. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Not only are you not fruitful, you never will be. In fact, we find that immediately this tree withers up. Mark gives us this one detail. You read Matthew's account, it seems to happen very quickly, and it is very quickly, but Mark gives us the detail that Jesus continues on to Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple, comes back to Bethany. But the next day, the very next morning, this tree, which was unique, this, this tree which caught Jesus' attention because it stood out from every other fig tree at that time. Out of season, out of time, it looked healthy, it was producing leaves, gave all indications it would produce fruit. Everything about this looked to be a superior fig tree. And the very next day, what do they find? Look at verse 20. And they were passing by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots. (laughs) Now, if you know anything about plants, trees, especially, that um, process of dying takes a little bit of time, don't it? There's a lot of farmers right now in the fields that have been spraying and, and killing off things that are on their field for planting. But you know, even when they run that sprayer across that field, You know, you don't always, if you didn't watch him spray that field, you might not even know he'd sprayed that field the first day or two or more. Gradually over time, what happens? You begin to see the drooping and the changing color and eventually everything dies out. But it takes a bit of time. You can kill a tree by cutting the bark off all the way around it, right? Circling all the way around it. And what happens though? It takes time, doesn't it? And it'll begin to die and then everything begins to rot and and limbs begin to fall and eventually the tree will decay away, but it's over time. What happens with this fig tree? Literally, overnight, when they return, 
this most healthy, outstanding, above everything else tree had withered from the roots up. This was not normal. (laughs) This was absolutely spectacular and absolutely caught the attention of the disciples. They had never seen anything like it. What are they really amazed by? Perhaps they're amazed by the fact that Jesus spoke and it happened. But perhaps more amazing to them was the suddenness with which this happened. Not just that Jesus cursed it and the fig tree died. If they had come back months later and this tree was died, they probably wouldn't have thought a lot about it. But the fact that it happened so quickly. You say, why does that even matter? Why is that important? Do you realize how quickly Destruction comes upon those who look otherwise healthy. I mean, this is how quickly things turn for Israel. It was very sudden, very fast. Here was the God's chosen people that were going to be quickly brought to nothing. So sudden. So that was the reason for the curse. And we see the judgment of God reflected really in both of these events, the fig tree and the temple. So we see the angry Christ as he curses the fig tree, but look at the angry Christ now as he cleanses the temple in verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables, of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he was not permitting anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Now, remember what Christ had done. He had come in and he examined the temple back in verse number 11, right? He already understood the state of affairs and what was going on in that place. And so now he has examined. He's judged. He's weighed. It reminds me in the book of Daniel of the writing on the wall. Mine, mine, tekel you farsin. In other words, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Christ has given his assessment and they came up short, way short. And we see his method for driving them out. It's interesting. Jesus didn't just go in and said, uh, excuse me, everybody, if you don't mind, we really shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff here. You know, if you would just take your um, animals and your booths where you're exchanging money and if you would just vacate the premises, that would be appreciated. That's actually not how Christ handled this at all. In fact, and keep in mind, he is completely, perfectly righteous. He knew no sin. He never sinned. And so the action that takes place here, we therefore conclude, was not sinful. In fact, the action that takes place now was completely right. Jesus, in his righteousness, in his anger, drives them out. Clears the way, overturns the tables, runs the animals out. You need to understand how big of a deal this was. Now, for some of you maybe who don't like confrontation, this seems like a big deal anyway. But can you imagine the number of people and what was going on and what type of man it took to take the action that Jesus took that day? It was, it was quite a manly action. As he overthrew those tables, as he ran everyone 
out. Notice, it was those who were buying and selling in the temple, the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who were selling doves, and he didn't permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Jesus says, I just created a roadblock, and you're not going through. (laughs) There's going to be no more of this activity here. There's still those today who decry our fighting in the physical world, our fighting in the world of politics. I mean, after all, everything's a spiritual battle, right? So you Christians should just stay in the church or in your home, in your closet, praying, hoping for the best, right? And they would have us to be silent, quiet, passive, don't intervene, don't get involved in this world, while intentionally overlooking the fact that the spiritual materializes in the physical. The reason we see evil physically in our world today is because there is a spiritual reality of evil that plays out in the physical. And you can't separate those two. A person whose heart is evil takes physical evil actions. And so though we as Christians may pray for that person, there may come times where we physically have to take action, perhaps to protect our family, to protect our loved ones. Jesus didn't just say, well, hey, disciples, go back and pray about it. (laughs) He took action. He upset the carts, literally. But his actions were completely justifiable. And righteous. Now, where did they take place? We find where Jesus is at at this time would have been what was known as the court of the Gentiles. There were different areas within the temple, three distinct areas. You would have a court for the Gentiles, the area for the women, the area for the men, and this would be getting closer to the Holy of Holies where the ark would be and where God was known to come and dwell, tabernacle among man. But it was out there in the court of the Gentiles, which was designed to give opportunity for the nations, for the world, for the Gentiles, those who were otherwise on the outside, to come, to see, to learn, to be closer and experience God. But the Jews, you understand, found the Gentiles to be detestable. And in their mind, they were hoping that a Messiah would come and would run the Gentiles out of the temple. In their minds, a cleansing of the temple would be cleansing it of the Gentiles. And they would hope a Messiah would do such. But what happens when the Messiah comes? He doesn't cleanse the temple of the Gentiles. Instead, he cleanses the temple for the Gentiles. You see, the Jews had taken the court of the Gentiles and turned it into a stockyard for commerce. You understand, this was the biggest fundraiser that the Sanhedrin had. This was the way they made the most money. This is what was filling the coffers. They knew that everyone traveling from all over the place 
were coming and going to need to make a sacrifice. They needed to exchange money and they needed to buy a sacrifice. This was a lot more convenient for them, obviously, than bringing it all the way with them. So they capitalized on that and they would they would charge exorbitant rates to exchange these funds and beyond what was normal even for the cost of these sacrifices. And it was big business. They were raking in a lot of money. (laughs) Josephus recorded that by AD 66, there were some 255,000 lambs that were slaughtered in Jerusalem during Passover. Put this in perspective. That's just the lambs. We're not talking about the doves. That's a lot of animals. You can start doing the math. You can realize this was big business. What did Jesus do? He stepped right in the middle of the big business, upset it all, and he cleansed the temple. The place that had been a symbol of God's dwelling among them had become a place of commerce, fundraising, and taking advantage of others. The Gentiles who should be invited into that court were being replaced by the stockyard. (laughs) You see, there's being represented here the holiness of God dwelling among man. That man, when he comes to God, is to be holy as God is holy. And yet, instead of the temple being a place of holiness, it become a place of corruption. Stench. There's some question about this cleansing of the temple. I told you about some of the controversies of the scripture. Some debate whether Jesus cleansed the temple once or twice. When you look at the Gospels, it seems to indicate that there was an earlier time in Jesus' ministry where he put together that cord, that whip, and drove out the money changers. And then you find this passage here. So some have tried to reconcile the timing of these and make it one cleansing of the temple. Others maintain that they were distinctly two different occasions in which Jesus cleansed the temple. And it appears that it's very likely that there were two occasions in which Jesus had cleansed the temple. It's as if he cleanses it the first time and what happens? They're right back where they were and it's cleansed again. But I want to show you something I think is very interesting because I think it probably is representative of what happens here. If you look back in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter number 14, this is one of those books that you like to overlook in your reading because it's one of those that lays out all of these laws and things that Israel had to keep. But there's something here I want you to see. In Leviticus chapter 14 and verse number 33. Stay with me for just a minute. I think you'll see where this is going. Leviticus 14 verse 33. Yahweh further spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When you enter the land of Canaan, which I'm giving you for possession, and I put a mark of leprosy on a house in the land of your possession... Then the one who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, saying, something like a mark of leprosy has become visible to me in the house. 
The priest shall then command that they empty the house before the priest goes in to look at the mark, so that everything in the house need not to become unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in to look at the house. By the way, who is a great high priest? Who's the one who replaced all those priests? Christ Jesus, right? Now, does anybody remember what he did back in verse number 11 of our text when he went into Jerusalem? He goes to the temple and he looks around, doesn't he? We find the priest here in Leviticus 14 going in this house that's been marked by leprosy and he looks around. Verse 37, and he shall look at the mark and if the mark on the walls of the house has greenish or reddish depressions and appears deeper than the surface of the wall, then the priest shall come out of the house to the doorway and put the house under isolation for seven days. (laughs) So he comes in one time, does an inspection, the house goes under um, an isolation for seven days. In verse 39, the priest shall return on the seventh day. And what's he going to do? He's going to look again. So this is now the second time that the priest has come back to this house to look around, right? And to see if it's contaminated or not. If the mark is indeed spread in the, to the walls of the house, verse 40, then the priest shall command them to tear out the stones with the mark in them and throw them away at an unclean place outside the city. And he shall have the house scraped all around inside, and they shall pour out the plaster they scrape off in an unclean place outside the city. Then they shall take other stones and replace those stones, and he shall take other plaster and replaster the house. In other words, there's going to be a, another cleansing of the house. Look at verse 43. If, however... The mark breaks out again in the house after he has torn out the stones and scraped the house and after it has been replastered. Then the priest shall come in and look again. And if he sees that the mark is indeed spread in the house, it is a leprous malignancy in the house. It is unclean. He shall therefore tear down the house, its stones and its timbers and all the plaster of the house, and he shall take them outside the city to an unclean place. Now, Let's just summarize quickly what happens. They come into the land. They find the evidence of leprosy there in the house. The priest goes in and looks around. He says, we're going to put it under quarantine for seven days. He comes back. There's more evidence. So they tear out everything they can. They clean the house. But then he comes back again and finds more evidence. What happens to the house? It's torn down. It's removed. It's non-existent. Jesus Christ comes into the temple once again. He cleans the temple one more time. This is the last time the temple will be cleaned before it's destroyed. In AD 70, that temple, that city, nothing would remain. Every single stone would be torn down in God's judgment. You see, ultimately the Jews rejected their Messiah, and so the gospel then moved to the Gentiles. So their holy city and their temple was destroyed, and their nation was judged. Understand that our view of God and our worship of Him, it really does matter, doesn't it? They had neglected His worship in the temple, corrupted it. But it does matter. Do we honor and respect 
our Lord? Or do we just seek to capitalize on Him? Or see what we can get from Him? I'm not just talking about some of the preachers out there today. And there are plenty of these ministries and churches and and ministers, so-called, that seek to capitalize on God. I would imagine the lobbies of some of these churches look very similar to what the court of Gentiles look like at this time. (laughs) They're peddling their wares and it's the biggest source of their income. But you know, it's not just those folks, it's us, isn't it? As we sometimes come, not for what we can give, not for the honor and glory we can give to Him, but God, what can you give me? What can you do for me? Do you come to worship for what you give or what you get? You see, God's judgment came and the temple was destroyed, but now He tells us that we are His temple, right? So is He honored in this temple today? Is He honored in us? Or maybe is our temple in need of some cleansing this morning? Christ is angered at sin and uncleanness. And we are to be holy as He is holy. Not just whitewashed tombs like Jesus accused the Pharisees of being those hypocrites. In other words, we clean up the outside, we wash the outside, we make it all beautiful, but inside we're really just full of dead men's bones. And that brings us to the final thing, and we'll close. We see the angry Christ curses the tree, and the angry Christ cleanses the temple. But notice the angry Christ cares for his own. In the midst of this, this is not just an unhinged Christ without reason, motive, or intent. In verse 17, it says, He began to teach and say to them, You see what he does? After he cleanses the temple, he begins to teach those who are there. And he says to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? As he quotes from the book of Isaiah here. But you have made it a robber's den. By the way, the chief priest scribes heard that in verse 18, and they were seeking to destroy him. They were afraid of him, and the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Isn't it interesting that Isaiah had told us that his house was to be called a house of prayer, not just for the Jews, not just for Israel, not just that Jewish nation, but rather is a house of prayer for all the nations. While there was a special significance for Israel, it wasn't exclusive. There were others who had been grafted in. And here was the court of the Gentiles that had been polluted. And Christ reminds them that this house was a house for all the nations. Christ cared about his father's house. He said, it's a house of prayer, but you have profaned it. It's for his elect, his chosen from all the nations, none excluded. You see, the Jews, again, had hoped that the Messiah would clean the temple from Gentiles. But here's Jesus cleaning it for the Gentiles. And he would pave the way for every one of us regardless of what nationality we are, what race we are, 
we would all only come the same way. Those priests in verse 18 were looking to destroy him. And they would do just that with the cross. And yet, that was the plan and the method, the way that Christ would bring us to himself. So are we seeking him or are we seeking ourselves? What do you come before him for? There's only one way that we can come. And that is because of his death. That's how we become his own. Are you in him this morning? Christ truly inspects us as no other. He sees beyond the mask to the heart. And one day, judgment will come and the facade will be ripped away. Are we ready? Are you ready? Will you face an angry Christ? As He inspects you today, what does He find? Is there cleansing due and you today? See, Christ cares for, paid for every sin upon the cross. Find your forgiveness there today because it was there that God's wrath was satisfied and you were delivered from the hands of an angry God. Let's bow together for prayer. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.